We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Shane, and um, 
you know, what I was thinking was while you were describing all of these events that we, um, we kind of take an isolation and, and, uh, and don't, uh, generally connect the dots about uh, is that we're being lied to monstrously mm. and that um, you know while while most while most NASA scientists and other people in positions of power don't know the big scoop or, or the larger uh, scheme of things there are certainly some that do and um, and so maybe maybe that is uh, a part of the monstrousness that we're faced with uh, in our reality. Yeah, maybe that's something we can dig into a bit today is the idea of, you know, what a monster is and you know, how it relates to, um, you know, the, the myths and the legends. You know, is there something of a social construct there that we can apply to everyday reality? Uh, and And then are there also other questions about the unknown, you know, things that we... Um, may not witness on a day-to-day level, but uh, are are still there and uh, kind of frightening and a little bizarre. The bizarre aspects of our world. So, so do we have a a, a working definition that we're looking to kind of explore the uh, this topic? Uh, yes, we do. Um, a monster, uh, generally speaking, is any creature, um, usually found in legends or myths and even horror films that is hideous, it produces fear or physical harm by its appearance or actions. Um, the word monster comes from the word monstrum, the Latin word monstrum, and it's an aberrant occurrence and is usually biological and, and that there's something wrong with the natural order of things. Uh, monsters can denote wrong or evil. Um, they're generally morally objectionable, physically or psychologically hideous, and or freaks of nature. Um, the root of monstrum is monere, which um, means warn, but it also means to instruct. And so the monster can also be a sign of instruction. Um, St. Augustine uh, came up with a more benign interpretation and didn't see monsters as inherently evil, but as a part of a natural world. Well, when, when I think of monsters, I think the first image that comes to mind is uh, Hillary Clinton. <laughs> And John yeah, let's call monsters extraordinaire, yeah, they're really scary, yeah, we uh at the at sought usually connote uh these their monstrous behavior with psychopathy, of course uh, um but uh you know because of their sleek veneer um which also speaks to uh psychopaths in positions of power, uh, we don't often consider their actions monstrous because they're so veiled behind the apparatus of uh, you know, what is now considered normal political workings and, and, uh, and policy. But uh, I think it's apt. I think we can call them monsters. Now, um, I'm going to try fielding some calls. I know some callers come in just to listen. Uh, we just had a recent one, so I'm going to take this and see who they are. Uh, hello, caller. Are you calling in to discuss the show? Okay. I, mm-hmm. All right, so back on track. So, um, Well, another consideration is, um, I mean, 
you hear monsters being used uh, in reference to the acts of uh, serial killers like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer. And, um, you know, these were individuals in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who were best known for uh, kidnapping, um, rape, uh, dismemberment, um, uh, necrophilia. Um, I mean, just kind of unimaginable um, behavior that that takes the prize in... uh, in, in monstrousness, um, you know, you, you look at pictures of them, and uh, of course, if you already know what they've done, then you can superimpose a, a malevolent expression or stare. But really, these guys look pretty average, um, and uh, it does well to keep in mind that. There is this psychological hideousness, as you were defining it a little earlier, Meg, about these individuals who are capable of such things. And uh, so far we have uh, psychopathy as the best kind of explanation of, of enables them to do the types of things that they did. Um, but I think holding them up as an example of modern-day monsters, in addition to the Hillary Clintons and uh, is uh, pretty instructive. Well, I think the contrast uh, between the mask that they put out there, that they project, and you know this mask of sanity, which is very appealing, oftentimes, you know, it can um, project this image of what we most want to see, and it, it can be very charismatic and friendly, and you know something that we would want to bond to, and. Then when you know the mask comes off and you see their true and the things they have done, you know it's that contrast that really you know uh, penetrates you to the core and uh, and it releases this like just this it is really horrible. And I think that contrast really you know um, between their mask and you know what lies underneath. Is, is what adds to kind of the, the terror of, of it all. Um, and, you know, there there is a, with, with the definition that Meg provided, you know, there's something about uh, monsters uh, in the um, mythic sense where, you know, they're, they're not uh, completely alien. Uh, there's, there is this human type form that has these animalistic um, traits. Um, and, you know, that's what's really kind of what you see with, with, like, with, um, with human predators and, and psychopaths and human monsters is that there is this semi-human form, but what's underneath is, you know, this really barbaric and, you know, monstrosity, right? Well, you get you get things like you know uh, people who remind you of werewolves because um, at, at at certain at certain times uh, they seem like normal human men. All of a sudden, you know, you, you get to the their underbelly and they've completely changed into animalistic nature with with uh, predatory traits. Well, one one thing that. Um I liked in the definition 
was that they can provide a, a sort of uh, sign or instruction. And, you know, usually, you know, it's, um, you know, when, when we're caught up in the, the suffering that, you know, these monsters unleash, you know, I think it can be difficult to, you know, process those things. And you know, that's, that's all part of the, the trauma. Um, but, you know, there is something to be loved. Um, from you know those experiences, and specifically just the nature of uh, psychopathy and the na- nature of pathology, and how it relates to us, and how you know we can become infected um, with with their worldview, uh, with their beliefs, with their distorted ideologies. Um, that that infection, you know, we've talked a lot about it, you know, in terms of ponderology. And you, know, you find that idea um, in a number of uh, stories about monsters. Like so, with the zombies, you know, there's this inf- uh, infectious element where they pass on their their zombiness. Uh, or you know, with vampires, um, you know, they they suck in one, somebody else's blood and turn them into a vampire, and you know, you become uh, like them and we do have this uh, this narcissistic wounding uh, that's pretty much all throughout society. Uh, we have this uh, this psychological disease uh, that you know it, it goes so deeply into us. I mean, it it's, it doesn't just affect um, you know our minds; it damages our emotions. It goes right down to our genes. You know, it messes with our genes when we have all this traumatic stress. It's it's screwing up our DNA, you know. It's it, it goes down to that level, and and changes, and it can change us. But we can learn from that, and you know we can apply those lessons to um, to you know find some type of recovery, find some type of healthy what it means to be healthy. So we have that contrast to to kind of work out uh, within ourselves. Um, one of the Topics I kind of wanted to explore a little bit, like uh, in relation to that, was uh, Philip Zimbardo's uh, Stanford prison experiment. Um, so readers may be or listeners may be familiar with uh, with that story, but I'll, I'll go into it just a little bit. Um, I believe it was in the 70s that Philip Zimbardo he started uh, this uh, this it was basically a psychological experiment with uh, Stanford students. Where uh, he, you know, had these um, all these applicants, and he screened them, and you know, he had these tests that they had to take to ensure that they were uh, psychologically healthy individuals. And then, so those were, you know, there's maybe 20 participants, and certain ones were selected to be the prisoners, and elected to be the guards. And there wasn't necessarily, you know, some authoritarian measure of, you know, this person would be a good guard. Um, but so he uh, started the experiment by uh, having, in, like, involving the local police. They went to uh, these people's homes, these students' homes, and arrested them, uh, brought them out in their pajamas and put them in the police cars and brought them to, it was basically like a makeshift um prison and within the on the Stanford campus and they you know created these rooms 
uh, where um, the prisoners would stay. And you know, within within just a few short days, uh, the roles that these students took on uh, quickly excelled uh, to you know, abuse. Um, well, Shane, so some of the students were assigned roles as guards, and some of them as uh, the inmates, right? Right. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, it was a pretty arbitrary uh, decision in terms of who who chose or who became what. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you could quickly see how certain guards, and I don't think it was all of them. You know, some would would just kind of go along with the abuse. Some of them really liked and you know kind of you know got off on uh, creating this uh, this this terror in in the inmates. Um, they would do things like, you know, um, sleep deprivation, um, exercise, making them do push-ups, and um, it got to the point where uh, it, the, the experiment only lasted six days, but within those six days, the deterioration and uh, the um, the people involved in the experiment got so consumed and uh, one important point here too is um, people could freely say, you know, I'm not doing this anymore, mm-hmm. and I want to leave. And there were um, one or two cases where where that did happen, uh, but there seemed to be um, a force that where they got caught up in this dynamic so much mm-hmm. that that wasn't even a reality for them anymore. Uh, that the outside reality didn't exist that they were actually prisoners, that the prisoners were actually prisoners and the guards were actually guards. And uh, in the book, The Lucifer Experiment, uh, uh, Zimbardo talks about this process. And it's basically a process of infection. And you can't, I don't think you can say that um, Zimbardo was a pathological type or a psychopath uh, or any particular guard um, or prisoner was pathological, but the system that he created itself, um, where there was you know this um, this dominance and almost this uh, unanswerable um, dominance where they don't have they don't have to you know answer to anybody. Um, and Zimbardo he got caught up in the experiment just as much as as the others, and it didn't stop until. Um, a, a woman whose friends with Zimbardo came and visited and saw the extent of what was going on mm-hmm. and said, so this is severely messed up mm-hmm. and said to him what it, what was going on and snapped him out of it. Uh, and, and he ended the experiment right away, right, right after that. But it took, you know, an outside person to come in and say that. And it took, uh, I think, somebody who has a conscience to be able to snap out of it. But the the scary nature of, of it was just how infectious uh these ideas were of um you know superiority and inferiority and the the roles that we can play uh you know in, these are basically social roles and you know we can these things can uh, occur you know within a home you know, they can occur within um, a classroom setting. You know, it's it, it's not just we, – we can take, I think we can take a lot of lessons from this. 
um, and, and just looking at, you know, this pathological nature that can be also removed from, you know, an actual psychopath. Now, imagine if there was an actual psychopath who was leading the study. That, you know, I think it could have been ten times worse. Easily. Yeah. It, it's a really interesting story, and, um, you know, I think the, the, the points that uh, you made about it um, are important. Um, you know, these these role players who took the the job of um, the the kind of uh, prison guards in the experiment uh, assumed um, a, a sort of role and and were infected with this authoritarian uh, empowerment uh, that they were unaware of for lack of any kind of psychological insight or or uh, any uh, instruction um, in what they might be in store for. Uh, it, you know, it sounds like this was just kind of, uh, let's put these people in a certain situation uh, and go with it, and let's see how they respond naturally. Um, the other thing that's so interesting about it is, you know, this outside observer who wasn't part of the dynamic, wasn't conducting the experiment, uh, you know, when you said that, I was thinking a little bit of, of Putin's speech at the UN and him having this healthy kind of uh, remove from the situation um, such that he can assess it and call it for what it is. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of need that outside um, perspective uh, that could only be um, provided by someone who has some psychological knowledge and uh, who can comment on it with some objectivity. So we may have a caller. Uh, I'm just going to go real quick and see. Uh, hello, caller. Are you there? Yes, I, I am here, and this is uh, Jonathan. Uh, hey, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jonathan. Yes, uh, well, uh, definitely an appropriate um, and timely topic given the, the day, uh, Halloween. So, um, you know what? I've been uh, thinking a lot about this thing about, you know, monsters within, like, our society, United States. And um, we have a situation where uh, you look at comments by people about Syria. Assad is a monster. He's a monster. He barrel bombs his own people. And it's repeated so many times that even people that maybe you've read before and you respected their opinion on something, you thought they were critical thinkers. Nope, they're not. They will internalize this larger meme that Assad is a monster. He gasses his own people. And it's just repeated on and on and on. And then, and then what's shocking is that, like for me, Noam Chomsky was an inspiration for me. And um, I've been kind of out of the loop because of, I've been, I was involved in this whistleblowing and then this other project where I'm just working these incredible hours. But then I find that uh, Noam Chomsky is actually swallowing the larger meme and distorting the situation of what is happening within Syria. And this is Noam Chomsky. And um, that's pretty shocking that somebody that you had built your own political persona and psyche around – 
them being a hero, somebody that could see further, that was no chump, that empowered other people to question the propaganda, swallows and regurgitates some of the most vile assumptions about Syria and what's going on there. And um, he also he also started out doing that with uh, with respect to Libya. And I really didn't know this because, I, like I said, I've been out of the loop. So um, have you guys done any research on this? Well, yeah, actually, those are good observations, Jonathan, and something we were discussing uh, before the show. Um, you know, Gaddafi, Assad, uh, it, it's no coincidence that, that these people were considered demonized, you know, demonized, monstrosized, if that's even a word. Um and the irony, of course, is that uh, the, it, it's a projection on the part of, uh, of U.S. media and political interests. Um, you know, ISIS, uh, by many bloggers and analysts, has been called a kind of Frankenstein's monster. Uh, it, it is a uh, this conglomeration of, of you know, psychopathic mercenaries and, uh, and jihadists and, and religious extremists and uh you know political psychopaths who want nothing more than to assert their will on others not to serve others so uh yes i mean we've looked at it quite a bit and um and the irony of course is that those who are demonizing uh these individuals who are who are actually constructive forces for their nations uh i.e assad Gaddafi. um are the monsters themselves, and uh, they've they've so far, among a lot of people, done a very good job of putting this this label and this uh, okay. projected identity onto these others. Yes, and um, like again, I wanted to emphasize that I've been I've been kind of out of the loop in that I uh, have been involved in these other projects. Now, before that, in my lifetime, I had during my you know university years, I. I read all of these magazines, like these left magazines and Progressive and The Nation and Counterpunch, and this is when the paper. So when the Internet comes, you know, things change a lot. Now, I've been trying to catch up in this last couple of weeks with what's been going on, so I started researching, like, what the articles and so forth that were written in the lead-up to uh, Libya, uh, the role democracy now played, um, some things Chomsky has said and others. And uh, I've been actually shocked. So I just start digging further. Then I found this information, and this is really interesting. This guy named Jeremy Scahill, he he um, led a vendetta to stop a woman, uh, a Catholic nun from Syria named Mother Agnes. She was presenting material that questioned the dominant propaganda that the Syrian government had used gas on their own people. And um, Jeremy Scahill, you know, put, put out a huge amount of energy to stop Mother Agnes from speaking at a Stop the War event in London. Now, why would Jeremy Scahill do this? Isn't that wild? I started researching further. Yeah, well, I started researching further. Now, turns out Jeremy Scahill, uh, Laura Poitras, and Glenn Greenwald 
are, have all come together to develop this uh, Internet magazine called The Intercept. And um, so I'm like, wow, what about this Pierre Omidyar? Pierre Omidyar is friends of Obama, and Pierre Omidyar put money into NGOs in Kiev pre-Maidan, pre-coup, before the coup. Hmm. Now, so I started going through the archives of uh, The Intercept. Okay, I want to know what, what The Intercept, how they cover Syria, how they cover Ukraine. And um, Glenn Greenwald, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald uh, had a couple of articles that were, like, questioning, pointing up some of the neo-fascist character of the junta, a couple, but it was been very sporadic. And then he also had a couple of articles that were, like, almost pro, pro-junta, right? And then there was one mm-hmm. article by a woman, there was one article by a woman named Masha Gessen. She is a propagandist for... Um, uh, Voice of America in Europe. She's a paid U.S. propagandist. She's a Putin. She lies about Putin and Russia. Uh, they featured her article in The Intercept. I'm like, wow. And then I looked at an article written by Glenn Greenwald. It had to do with the BBC in Saudi Arabia and the BBC playing down the fact that Saudis are buying arms and they're going to give them to uh, you know al-Qaeda types, right? Well, mm-hmm. in the in the body of this article, and you guys can look at it, Glenn Greenwald actually states that it's arguable whether or not funding uh, rebel forces that are tied to Al Qaeda is um, is a good thing or not. You get well, what he, I'm saying? Uh, we carried uh, uh, one of uh, Glenn Greenwald's stories on. The, that Saudi story in um, in England. So the the BBC had had put out this basically this propaganda piece, and where they were masking the Saudi involvement uh, with um, with Al Nusra, and they were corrected. You know, so some reader wrote in and and. And, and told them, you know, well, you know, Saudi is actually, you know, when they're funding this organization, that's part of Al Nusra. And Greenwald covered that, but at the end, at the end of the article, you know, he goes off on on Russia, and you know, it, it was a complete distortion of, uh, you know, it, and and this, this lack of apparent critical thinking that he does apply in certain situations, it's not applied across the board. So, you know, he accepts yeah, that and, Assad and gas his own people. And, and you know what? what I found, here's what I found intriguing about it, is that actually what he does is he sets up a, a false equivalent with respect to this, what's happening in Syria. What's happening in Syria is no secret. It's been going on for years. Um, the dynamics are this. Russia has been invited into Syria to help the legitimate government defend, fend off paid mercenary jackals that are sponsored by U.S., Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and also coordinated with Turkey. This is in direct violation of international law. The way he sets it up is it's, oh, it's either or. You could, you could make good arguments why it's not a bad thing. Um, help arm these rebels. My God, the mask is freaking off. 
this guy, he's so scared to come out and say exactly what is happening. That's just on the face of it. Just state the facts. It's a contravention of international law. He's so scared to do it. And he's so scared to be labeled like, you know, on the side of Russia, that this mealy-mouthed guy just, like, confuses his readers, and the situation is left unclear. And um, mm-hmm. I excoriated him on his site in the comments section. You will see my name. My real name is Stephen Hunt, S-T-E-V-E-N-H-U-N-T. You will see my comments where I took him to task about that. He, I did not violate any of the comment um, rules. He basically banned me. He's cut me off. I cannot make on the Internet website. I was also asking him, putting him on the spot, why Jeremy Scahill would, would help stop Mother Agnes from speaking and coming out presenting her evidence that contradicts the dominant propaganda line that Syria used chemical weapons on their own people. So um, I just wanted to bring that to the forefront. I'm writing an article right now about this. I call what The Intercept is doing a form of jackal journalism. I call it jackal journalism. And what this is, The Intercept, this is my, this is my, uh, this is what I'm guessing at this. The Intercept, Jeremy Scahill, they are actually work in tandem with U.S. intelligence. Um, Jeremy Scahill uh, did an article this last week, too, about drones supposedly using information that was linked to him. And now Jeremy Scahill's coming out and going, yeah, what Obama's doing, he's murdering, right? This, in my opinion, to, uh, to try to posture that, um, you know, he's taking on, you know, the government, you know, on this issue. Anybody with two brain cells could call the uh, using drones that kill inordinate amounts of, uh, you know, civilian casualties, terrorism on the, on the face of it. So uh, Jeremy Scahill needs to come out and answer what prompted him to come out with so much energy to stop Mother Agnes from speaking. And you know what? My mom's deceased, but she was a staunch Catholic. And I'll tell you what, she wouldn't, she wouldn't really cotton to, like, somebody disrespecting Mother Agnes. So well, that's, that's uh, semi-humorous, but I'm actually, this is really disgusting on the part of uh, – What's going on with the intercept, in my opinion? That's that's all very interesting. Um, just a couple of things, you know. Jeremy Scahill pretty much made a nail of the uh, Blackwater or late, um, you know, whatever they were, uh, and uh, and it, it, for a very long time, like he was. Uh, area, considering the amount of uh, courage that's required to speak out about some very dangerous people. Uh, Glenn Greenwald, um, in divulging all of the information regarding Edward Snowden, uh, I mean, basically, essentially, uh, taking so, uh, but whether whether or not, Jonathan, as you say, um, they're kind of following the party line out of some kind of fear um, as opposed to a, a PSYOPs or, or a COINTELPRO operation. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, one other thought I have is that 
for all of the insight that they have in some areas, they might be incredibly blind in other areas. Um, and, and this is where being as well-rounded and looking as deeply into certain, you know, all directions uh, comes into use. Um, so, yeah, I'd, well, I'd be well, interested you know in, in, yeah. in reading but, any of your analysis. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this article. I should have it completed this week, but it's not going to be long. It's going to be concise to the point. I'm not going to engage in, in, the, in wild speculation because that would be cross purposes. But uh, you know what's kind of confusing is this. Omidyar works with U.S. intelligence, funnels money into uh, Kiev, supporting groups that, that basically were part of the coup, right? Now, the coverage of uh, by the Intercept as far as the uh, Ukraine situation has been spotty, sparse, and fairly abysmal. There's been a couple of articles that were somewhat cogent, but they haven't been consistent in their focus, and it's been such a huge topic for, you know, almost two years now. And that's kind of questionable. But then there's the fact that Greenwald um, becomes a celebrity. He's invited onto Bill Maher and other kind of, like, talk shows. Uh, Jeremy Scahill, he's a celebrity, telegenic, and, you know, he poses as this superstar, like, taking on the U.S. government. Now, I believe this. If there were uh, these papers that were supposedly were leaked to Scahill this last week, as per the drone program, I believe that these were just they they were let out willfully on the part of U.S. intelligence. It's a head fake. So they give him some information that's not really going to compromise anything deep within their structure and um, and harm their program. But uh, it's also it's also just. To me, it's just a belated coming out and saying the obvious, that this is barbaric and underhanded and stupid and all of that. He's basically saying that, but, you know, at this point coming out with it. But going back to uh, Greenwald, I don't think Greenwald, I don't give him a pass on just being kind of like ill-informed on what, what pretty much what's going on in with Syria and the fact that he poses as this moral individual, but he kind of engages a narration where it's it, it could be six on the one hand, you know, half dozen on the other with respect to the supporting Al-Qaeda-aligned, uh, you know, groups that are trying to overthrow the government of Syria. I, I don't give them a pass on that. That's just being very smarmy. And um, just the fact that he, he, he feels that he can say that and not have any kind of repercussion from it, I think it's shocking. But it's actually a correct assessment because the right wing and the dominant corporate media were not, will not take him to task for, for having that position. And our minds collectively have been so addled, and the people that are considering themselves on the anti-war left, we're so, we're so confused and unorganized that we, give him a, we, we will give him a pass on that in, in general. But I, I won't because somebody has to call out what he said, and um, the fact that he censors me on his website. My name is Stephen Hunt, and um, you know I can never I can never comment on anything there. But then he has other people well, in the comment section. Oh, just, I just want to make one more point. He'll have other mm-hmm. people in the comment section that are been featured for you know months and months 
that just attack him from a right-wing perspective. But if I attack, if I question the integrity of Greenwald from a left-wing perspective, I'm banned. Isn't that interesting? Right. You're probably too close to the truth, and that's what scares them. Well, I, I just want to add uh, that, um, you know, we've had a couple of guests here who make it their living. Uh, you know, one of our guests discussed in depth the, the situation in um, in Gaza and the uh, deterioration in, uh, in just the living conditions. But I don't want to name names. And then we had another guest who uh, writes very deeply um, on... Uh, you know, Israel's greater ambitions in the Middle East, its connections to ISIS, uh, ISIS's um, uh, you know whole role in, in destabilizing Syria, and and then the guy comes out with articles that um, that are basically anti-Putin and anti-Russia, uh, that are so prejudicial and biased that you have to wonder, you know, uh, because if I had to bet a buck, I would say that that these two individuals are very well intended and regarding their areas of expertise pretty darn knowledgeable and yet um you know they're saying the things that they are regarding the intentions of russia um so i don't i i don't uh i don't think the free pass i agree with you i think he's a you know big and powerful voice in in uh regarding the issues he's discussing um uh, at the same time, I, I think, you know, it, it may be surprising uh, to see where a lot of these individuals are really on and, and insightful and correct about what, what they have focused on for a long time. And then when they veer off a little bit and onto another area, they're just, <laughs> they're not even wrong. Okay. They're here's, like, here's out what left I, field. Here's what I, look, you know what, here's what I would say. And um, mm-hmm. we're living in, a, and we're living. In, we are, we are players. We are all players in a large information war that has mm-hmm. and permutated to a point to where the, the level of sophistication in this age, where I, with where myself, with my iPhone, can develop content. This changes the 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 parameters and the rules and dynamics of the game have shifted. And we don't really know clearly how they've shifted. But when anybody can do, do, do engage due diligence and see pro and con like narratives about Putin, Russia, and if you come out with something sketchy that doesn't isn't, isn't a very compelling argument, um, and it's evident that you didn't engage even just minimal due diligence to form your argument, that's sketchy. Now there was a there was a thing called Operation Mockingbird. And I think you guys have discussed that before, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, so what I see, what I call the current operation that's going on right now, I call it Operation Poppin' J. And uh, you guys know what a Poppin' J is? They're the basically the, the repeaters. Yeah, somebody that comes out. It's a bird that comes out and just like repeats, repeats, just like makes grandstands. You know, grandstands that they're they're moral, they're ethical, and ooh, you don't even care about the people being slaughtered by Assad. So that's those are the poppin' jays, and um, the money links and the power links one could only speculate on. But I would be I would say this: 
I would say that I would say that very likely when you see these gross inconsistencies um, on areas of special importance like Syria and Russia, Ukraine, and people can't even do due diligence about the minimal facts, the, the facts, the information that's not beyond dispute, and if they develop these narratives um, that personalizes Putin's a dictator, for example, or Gaddafi, I mean, uh, Assad's a monster, you know, when they come out with that, you're being played. And um, if I ever engage a, uh, an essay or an article or journalism about, and I don't really like the leader, I believe he's a puppet of the United States, I might say that in not so many words, but I won't call the guy a monster. I won't call him a dictator because that detracts from the, the scope and the, the cogency of the actual information that I want to present to readers. I don't want to, I don't want to just like clumsily and just um, underhandedly manipulate people that would read anything I have to say. I would like to present. So Jonathan, where, where are you going to be? Where are you going to be posting your um, your article? Where can readers well, or listeners find that? You know what? You know what? I, I had this uh, fantasy maybe of of posting this at Russia Insider. And um, are you familiar with Russia Insider? Sure. Yeah, we like Russia Insider. Okay. Well, the only problem with that is two days ago I saw a puff piece on Omidyar. <laughs> And Omidyar. So they, they have they have a lot of different uh, writers there uh, as well. Uh, yeah. So sometimes you do get like slightly different perspectives. But I think overall, yeah. Omidyar setting up a uh, a defense fund for journalists. And um, you know somebody's being sued for libel. Omidyar's uh, you know defense fund will help you out of your bind, right? So my only question is if if Omidyar comes after me. Can I go to his defense fund so I can get some money for counsel? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, um, but, but, when you but, do, but anyway, when you do get it ready, uh, some of our chatters were were wondering where where they could read it. So, uh, so do I let would, us I know. Would like to, I, I would like to. Uh, I would like to publish it maybe in in Counterpunch, or present it to the uh, Russia Insider. And um, I've never I've never written anything for publication before. Um, you know, I'm a guy that lives in my truck basically. But um, I am intelligent. I have something to say. And um, if it's well written, if it's really well written and sharp, you know, and entertaining and valuable. If I'm not, if they refuse publication, you know, in these two two sites that I've mentioned, you know, it's like wow, it's pretty sad, you know. But uh, it just there's a lot of power things going on in any organization that has to generate money that we should be aware of, and and we should be aware of Greenwald and Scahill right now are multimillionaires, you know. So anyway, hey, thank you, thank you for letting me uh, interject this information. I would I would invite anybody to check out my comments in that particular article, and um, you know anyway, thanks a lot. Y'all take care. Bye bye. All right, thanks for calling. Thank you. Um, I did before we get back on the whole monsters topic. Uh, I did want to bring up one of the things that Jonathan was mentioning, just about you know the intercept, and what I find kind of fascinating uh, and telling is when you look at you know a number or most, uh, if not all, like the really popular 
uh, alternative uh, type media places uh, like the Young Turks, um, even Ben Salon, uh, a lot, a lot of the Western alternative movies. You don't see anything about uh, what's going on with Russia and Syria. It's it's missing. It's and it's it's so glaring that it's missing such, because it's such big news. And you know when when thought pieces about um, Russia and Syria, uh, when Russian insiders articles, uh, Sputnik and RT's articles, these 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 they're going they're like so popular on the web. People are really looking for information on these things, and they're not getting it from uh, you know these so-called alternative news sources. Um, when they do talk about it. You know, it is in the context, like Jonathan said, of, you know, Assad's a, a dictator, uh, Putin's a strong man, and then, you know, then they go off into whatever other stories. But, you know, hopefully, uh, since people are looking for this type of information, these sor- these sources are, you know, really shooting themselves in the foot uh, because people are turning to uh, places that they can, you know, get that information well, you have to wonder also if, if they're kind of so on their train of thought that they're and so kind of identified with their own biases that um, they're they're almost not willing uh, for for lack of taking on any new information, mm-hmm. um, and that they you know in effect become infected uh, with uh, in ways that they don't even realize yeah. by uh, by Western propaganda and and what is considered normal coverage of these uh, events. But it's, it's much easier to keep the audience you have and grow that one than to strike out in a truthful d- direction or a new direction and, um, and bring people to your side. So in, in some respects, they're, they may be playing kind of both sides of the fence, but their bread and butter is only really buttered on one side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and their silence says something too. I mean, if if you have a devoted reader of the Intercept and they're not talking about Syria and Russia, it must not be that important. So that's another way to control information is to reduce your attention to it. Yeah, and your risk. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think what you said, Elon, about you know there there's these biases that that can play a big part, and yeah. Some of it might relate to, well, you know, how deeply do I want to challenge myself and my ideas of, you know, the way the world uh, works. And, you know, there is this really deep belief in the U.S. system. Even if people can see the corruption, you know, there's still this firm belief in the goodness of the West. And that that can be, you know, a... a pretty tough thing to 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 tackle and to to really wake up and see the horrors of you know the atrocities of of what we're committing and the lies the, the so many lies you know once you pass that that uh we were talking about that I think last week once you really break down those beliefs um you know you can see a whole lot more uh and you know, it, it, it's just a challenge, and psychologically, um, I don't think everybody's up for it. Mm-hmm. So, well, you have to, you know, you have to have something to replace it, and you know, going to uh, a polar opposite is is a really long stretch to do for a lot of people. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think the other part of it is, you know, it, it is so huge. It's like, what what are the implications here? Uh, you know, you have a lot of progressives and folks who are able to just go so far, uh, but let's not beat a dead horse here. Let's get back to monsters. Monsters. Okay, so what other monsters? Elon, you, you brought up Frank, Frankenstein, ISIS. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you have uh, Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, you know, one of the archetypical pop cultural uh, monsters. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been covering articles for SOT uh, for the past year and a half or so now, and I uh, just can't tell you the number of times uh, I've read uh, some astute analysis that likens ISIS to Frankenstein's monster. It's this, um, uh, and I think it's an apt analogy. Um, uh, you know, like we were saying a little while ago, uh, you know, projecting all of the uh, the, the kind of uh, monstrous uh, traits onto Gaddafi and and Assad is what monsters do. Um, you know, they they create the monsters, uh, i.e., ISIS, and and they. And they create these identities for individuals so that they can justify their violence. Um, so that that's just a kind of geopolitical component of uh, of monsters, as, as as I've come to understand it. Well, it seems that you know the you know the big politicians in the U.S. or just in the West in general, you know, they have this mask that they need to wear, and you know while they may have these um, times when the mask comes off in, in their personal lives and, you know, and they, you know, go to these sex parties and do all this debauchery, the uh, unleashing of, like, ISIS and giving power to uh, neo-Nazis in Ukraine, you know, that's, like, their essence. That, that's these politicians' essence being manifested on the world stage. And you know, that's that's basically their expression. You know, they can't express it at home right right now. I mean, we may go be going in that way, uh, but um, that, that, yeah, that's 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 kind of I think how the the dynamic kind of plays out uh, on on a, a more macro social level. Um, Meg, you had a little bit about um, Jung's archetypes and and how this whole idea kind of. <laughs> fits in to understanding. Uh, yeah. Well, we have a, just a general definition of um, what an archetype is. Uh, and it's basically it's a universal and recurring image, pattern, or motive uh, representing typical human experience. And they're patterns in behavior, patterns in thinking, behavior, and they're part of our psyche and social systems. And uh, one specific to monsters, which is interesting because it comes up in mythology, is that um, they stand in the way of the hero's progress, and they are a plague on society. So, you know, the hero has a certain quest that needs to go on. There's always a monster that prevents him from – he has to overcome it to continue his quest. Mm -hmm. So um, that's just the monster archetype. But it's interesting because, you know, uh, Campbell, uh, so he's written a lot on the hero archetype, and you don't really hear too much about the monster archetype. Uh, although, although it you know it clearly exists, and you know it, to me it seems to um, 
explore the ideas of, of otherness and how pathologicals um, depict the other when they themselves are really the other. Um, you know, they'll, like we were just talking about earlier, you know, they'll project their monstrosities onto other people. Um, and, you know, we see that with um, Assad, how they do that with Assad and Gaddafi and Putin. Um, but they also do that on, you know, a, a social level. You know, they'll uh, depict immigrants as the threat, as the enemy, uh, as the monster. And, you know, and they'll do the same uh, with, you know, trying to uh, divide people um, race, racially, um, you know, whatever whatever way they can, they want to divide humanity. It's that divide and conquer type strategy. Uh, and me, so we don't see the actual monsters, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting uh, windmills here and, um, and we're distracted by these images that, you know, they're putting out when we need to look uh, more close to ours. Well, you know, when, when Meg was describing um, the monster archetype, I was thinking about the Medusa, the Gorgon, and how uh, Perseus defeats the Gorgon with, the, the Gorgon with knowledge of uh, her danger, which is that, you know, she could stare individuals into stone, basically, and that he had to kind of fight her by looking uh, away and, and ultimately using his shield, if I remember correctly, as a mirror. To, as a mirror. Right. So um, there, there seem to be kind of uh, three components. Um, just a little formulation here. You know, we have the monster, or the Gorgon. Uh, we have all the victims uh, who, who lack the knowledge um, to defend themselves uh, appropriately um, against the monster uh, and turn to stone. And, and then we have the hero who, armed with knowledge, is able to uh, use the, the powers against the powers of the monster against right. the monster. And one of the purposes, I mean, of the monster archetype is that it represents a barrier you're supposed to overcome. I mean, it makes you want to run and flee, mm-hmm. and the the lesson or or whatever meaning of it is to overcome the fear. And I think that that at least in my experience, it's this fear. If something is controlling me through fear, it's because I don't know enough about it. And I think that a lot of what Jonathan was talking about, and we've talked about, people not wanting to know, um, I think that may stems from some fear. If they knew more um, mm-hmm. about what they feared, they may not fear it so much. And that's that's where shocks come in into play. Um, any, anytime you have you are distra- distracted or rocked out of your world by something startling or something. Um, horrific, or perceive something that is, that is scary, um, it it sends you know uh, a biological reaction through your body. Yes. Um, it it makes you on hyper alert. Um, these kinds of these kinds of reactions that you have. You know, we all know we you know we sweat or our pulses go up or you know we, our hearts race. And these these kinds of reactions um, uh, solidify within us the the, the new information or the new awareness and we're, um, when we when we come back down to quote unquote earth we have uh, a, a new perspective or or a, a change in um, you know how we do something or how 
how we look at something. So it's it can be a a, a building tool. Um, that can be kind of used both ways. Yeah, it can be used for 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 evil. Like that's how you know it would seem that you know kind of uh, pathological types operate. You know to provide these these shocks and shock people into submission and to you know debilitate them through stress and to train them, train people uh, how basically they want them to behave and think. But it, it also um, sharpens our reactions. Uh, we, we we put in a new default uh, level for for certain things. Um, back in primitive times, when um, you know people were roaming around in the forest and there were there were big bad you know animals out there going to get you, you you were on those kinds of alerts and you and you you figured out how to stay alive. Um, and it became it became an instantaneously almost your you know uh, a default takes over your your you don't have you don't have to think you just you're just doing and it's the right it's the right moment. And so you're talking about like a uh, a healthy yeah response yeah a learning something that that you learn and, and incorporate so that it is an automatic. You know, if if you're driving a car and and something some red light goes on, you you automatically put on the the brake. You don't. You don't think about, oh, I think I should put on the brake. You just do it. It just becomes you know, intrinsic to to your um, going forward. Well, you know, that reminds me of a, a story that Sot carried a, a while back, which was about um, individuals who were in pathological relationships. I forget the name of it. And, of course, we've covered a lot of stories that, that um, and a lot of articles that deal with that subject matter. But... Um, Anyway, it kind of outlined of uh, someone who you're intimate with who ends up probably being a psychopath given the types of things that they do. And I think the response was so strong to this particular article because so many people were, were at some point finding themselves wanting to make sense of and to learn from that, uh, that trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, and I think this is what you were getting at, Shane, that there's probably a whole other uh, group of people who have been defeated in a way uh, and who have allowed the damage to take hold uh, in, in such a way as to be soul killing and, um, and don't seek out the knowledge and the information that would allow them to understand what was actually occurring to them when they were traumatized. Yeah, I think that's a key point right there, because uh, the, the question came to my mind, well, you know, how to how do we develop these healthy responses versus getting caught up in uh, the the shock from pathologicals and being you know steered in directions that basically they want us to go. So how how do you do that? And I think, uh, like you said, it's with knowledge. You know, it's with the it's it's using truth and and using that drive. To really understand, mm-hmm. you know, why it happened, um, to explore it, and that's one of the, uh, you know, just really sad things about trauma, is that it does, um, you know, it tries to kill curiosity, and that exploration of knowledge and ideas, um, but, you know, I think when we can, you know, apply ourselves to get interested in these things, we can help like awaken that sense. And and uh, and 
use that for for healing. Yeah, I mean it's it's an opportunity for empowerment certainly, and um, you know if you've ever uh, experienced um, being attacked uh, verbally by someone who's uh, pathological, um, I was watching uh, The Shining um, recently with a few friends of mine, and um, you know for those of you who remember the film, uh, you know the wife uh, of of the Jack Nicholson character uh, is is half traumatized by her husband's uh, virulent pathology and abuse, and uh, she is a, a bit of a deer in the headlights until she realizes bit by bit just what she's dealing with. And you know, the, it's a it's a horror story. So he's possessed by spirits in a haunted hotel where they're working in secluded in the, in the winter months of. Uh, uh, a frozen over uh denver colorado and um but uh you know the actress she's acting uh in in conveying uh the psychological horror and terror of her, her experience of her husband is so uh i think uh, accurate um and she she has to muster every bit of wit uh to protect her son from her husband. Um, so if you haven't seen it in a long time, folks, or if you've never seen it, it's it's uh, pretty pretty creepy. A great, I think, uh, kind of demonstrates uh, some of what we're talking about. There is um, a book written by Gavin De Becker. It's the Gift of Fear, and in it he says, "One woman who escaped terror described this state of concentration." that it replaced every feeling in her body. Like an eating insider, it opened up to its full size, stood up, using the muscles in her legs. I had nothing to do with it, she said. I was a passenger moving down that hallway. And what she experienced was real fear, not like uh, when we were startled, and you know, it's not the fear that we you see in a movie, um, or you know, like when we're... we're uh, on stage trying to, to do public speaking and, and just get tongue-tied and everything. This was a, a, a fear that became a powerful, al- powerful ally for her. Um, and it said, do what I tell you to do. Sometimes it ta- tells a person to play dead or stop breathing or to run and scream or, or fight. Um, just be quiet and don't doubt me. I will get you out of here. And this is from, again, Gavin DeBecker in his book, The Gift of Fear. Mm-hmm. So that that's that kind of describes what uh Shelley Duvall Shelley mm-hmm. was was uh experiencing in, in the movie, but at some point she went on automatic. Mm. Well he in in that passage, it's an interesting passage, uh all of this woman's instincts um seem to kick in. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, how do we uh, how does one prepare their instincts? Um, is, is such a thing possible? Uh, you know, I'd like to think that if I were in uh, a situation uh, such as she, yeah. that I would, that my instincts were, would kick in, uh, that that whatever um, kind of uh, amassed knowledge in this area that I have would, would serve me at that time. Um, so I, I do think that there's probably uh, a level of 
kind of self-cognition or metacognition involved. Like, okay, I'm experiencing this tremendous amount of fear right now. I can feel it in my body even. However, there's this other part of me that knows that unless I am in control, uh, that, that this other part of me is in control of the situation and what I do and how I respond, I might not get out of this alive. Um, There's, um, so Alexander Lowen, um, he wrote, he's kind of known for his, his work in uh, bioenergetics and kind of knowing the body and, you know, these, these various exercises that people can do uh, to unleash trapped emotions in the body. And, but he also had a book on, on nausea. And in that he, he wrote about uh, this distinction between horror and terror. And it's, it's more than a matter of semantics, I think. So he, uh, he looks at terror and uh, says, according to the dictionary definition, terror denotes an intense fear which is somewhat prolonged and may refer, may refer to imagined or future dangers. Horror implies a sense of shock and dread. The danger to which it refers contains an element of evil and may threaten others rather than the self. Uh, although there may be an element of fear in horror, uh, the Latin root of the word means great fear, it's not dominant. What predominates? What predominates is a feeling of repulsion coupled with its opposite attraction. Uh, horror movies, for example, build on this dual aspect. Well, what strikes me with that is that um, terror, you know, when we when we think of terror and, and terrorism, terror, terror, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like uh, that that really initiates this automatic response. Um, we're we're terrorized. You know, we're immobilized, and it's it's almost something that you know you can't you're not really thinking about. It's it's more of a state of of uh, uh, like dissociation, perhaps. But when we're horrified, we're um, there's also this element where we're seeing reality, uh, but we're there's a we're shocked by it. So we're seeing something, and and we're being shocked at the same time. So I think there might be uh, an additional element of uh, consciousness. So we should aspire to be horrified and <laughs> terrified. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, and it's putting together, you know, um, thought, perception, uh, impulse, uh, action, and it's, you know, we have we have intuition and, and just instincts, and then we have cognitive processes, and sometimes it's. It's good for the cognitive process to just step aside and let the instincts kick in. If the instincts are, if you have, are, them. yeah, <laughs> if, if, if you if, have them, and if, have if them. they're, I think, um, not completely like, warped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, just to answer my own question before, and of course, you reminded me by uh, reading that bit by Alexandra Lowen. Um, you can practice bioenergetics uh, by uh, practicing Eru Olas, the growth of knowledge. Um, meditation and breathing exercises. Uh, this will go some way into uh, clearing out um, emotional baggage and and just helping you to clear, you know, think more clearly and being more responsive to mm. your environment and your thoughts and uh, 
and and having clarity in ways that uh, one wouldn't expect to have. It works on pretty deep levels. So, um, yeah, maybe there's something to, uh, you know, wiping away all of the the, the, the programmed uh, fear-based responses um, or at least coming closer to what a healthy instinct would be yeah. by practicing something like Eru Olas. Well, um, one of the other reasons I brought up, you know, that passage um, in looking at terror and horror is because it seems that, you know, Americans um, in general you know, do have this fascination with terror mm-hmm. and meanwhile not really acknowledging the horror of of, uh, of our reality. So it kind of sounds like a contradiction, but... You know, when we when we look at this dynamic with this fascination with um with, with people watching scary movies, and you know what what goes on in in the psyche, you know what is released uh, when what do people get out of out of things like that? And is that a question? Well, yeah, a, a question and catharsis of some kind of negative emotions like. Mm-hmm. Violent video games, you know, as harmful as they are, may help a young teenager get aggression out, an expression of that. Um, it can be cathartic, I think. Yeah, so there can be this this catharsis, and perhaps that release is um, is maybe like related in some way to the denial of you know the the larger reality. Uh, you know, the, so in order to look away from um you know what's happening in uh Palestine and what's happening in uh Ukraine and you know just all all these horrific events instead you know we look to uh it's almost like a celebration of of terror with these ter- with, the, with these horror movies and um it's it's this more fictional um level where these emotions are processed and uh, I guess what I'm saying is if, if people can um, look to the larger world and what's going on and process the actual horror, I, mean, I think we'd be a lot better off um, to you know, utilize those, those emotions for, for, uh, for good and for seeing reality as it is. Yeah, well, another thing that um, I was reading about when it comes to horror movies that when you have these intense emotional experiences, it can be a bonding experience for human beings. So if you're going to see a scary movie with friends, you have more of a bonding experience if the emotional intensity is high. I mean, we're social, emotional creatures. So that might be another factor is why people enjoy those. I mean, mm-hmm. you can be happy during a horror movie because it ends, you know, and then enjoy the, the negative parts too. So you can have two emotions that whole time you're watching that movie, or, or multiple emotions, but you're glad when it's over. No. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really interesting thing too because you see uh, that that's how kind of psychopaths can bond in relationships is with uh, you know creating these intense experiences, you know, ranging from you know abuse and then you know making up, and it's just this uh, this consistent intensity that you know creates these bonds and these trauma bonds. Right. In specific to psychopaths, um, that is one of the things that they use to induce suggestibility. You can call it hypnosis, but it's more of a trance, um, 
that they inflict on humans. Um, and that, that is one of the key tools that they use, is the emotional, the high emotional um, anxiety level they create. It makes you more suggestible. Mm-hmm. So you go to a horror movie, you're having all these emotions, um, you're experiencing good and positive emotions, and then negative emotions, and it makes you more suggestible. So who knows what you're learning in that horror movie? Well, you, you know, you're you're pushing um, the kind of a, a arousal slash threat responses when when you go to a horror movie. You're you're in a safe place. You, you know, you, there's there's nothing that's going to happen to you in the movie theater, but you are kind of pseudo experiencing all all these kinds of things. And a lot of people, um, it's it's kind of akin to taking a medication. Uh, they they come out of these horror movies or a haunted house experience and and they're they're on a they're on a different level of of mood it's it, the, the mood is elevated um worries are gone it's it's like um taking taking a drug um and it's it basically is the prefrontal cortex takes back seat to the limbic system so um yeah it's it's one of those mechanisms that uh, some people just get to be you know horror movie junkies and they get it they get a a fix on it. It's heightened awareness, heightened arousal, heightened attention. And another thing that Sandra Brown writes in her book, Women Who Love Psychopaths, is that one of the other things that makes people susceptible, specifically women, was fascination. There was a high level of fascination among these women with their relationship with their psychopaths. And that was part of their attraction wooing phase. Um, and it just renders them suggestible. I'm a, she calls it hypnosis, entrancing but it just renders them um, suggestible of being in that heightened state. That's kind of the image that psychopaths put out there is this really fascinating and, you know, almost otherworldly uh, hero and, you know, that they have all these mysterious traits and that they have this uh, special knowledge. Um, and, you know, there, there is, I think Sandra Brown even talks about, you know, there's like this almost supernatural element involved uh, in uh, these these bonding phases uh, with this hypnotic ability that they um, place on their victims. Um, and yeah, you know, this this kind of relates to uh, when you're talking about the archetypes earlier, the monster archetype and the victim. You know, it, so there's this there's this duality there that one needs to go with the other. But then there's also, so there is this the victim, but we can also look at that role in, or that archetypical role in terms of the hero. So, you know, there is this potential uh, to, to really grow from that experience uh, and to overcome the monsters. Yeah, know thy right. enemy. Yeah. You know, this, this, is, uh, this speaks to the fascination that so many women had with Jeffrey Dahmer and uh, Ted Bundy when they were in prison, uh, even after knowing mm. uh, what horrific acts that these individuals did and were guilty of, uh, they wanted to marry them, and and so you know, it it takes a it takes this whole trauma bond uh, um, idea to a whole other level. It's as though you know, I, I, I don't want to ascribe, uh, uh, well, let me just say this. I mean, there's something almost preternatural, uh, something almost um, 
you know, how else to explain aside from the fact that the women who, who write these guys are pathological themselves, uh, the, their attraction to these people. So there, there, there are all these types of things that work here. Um, and, uh, it's just darn strange to, to, to read about. I've never understood it. Uh, I guess it can best be explained by the idea that, that these women are, are unstable themselves or have had experiences perhaps where they were uh, trauma bonded at some point and, and, and needed to be fed upon by a new uh, dark master of, of uh, you know, yeah. of I, civilization. I think, I think there can be a whole spectrum because uh, Sandra Brown does write about how, you know, many of the targets of psychopaths are strong, very strong women, um, not necessarily a history of trauma, although that, that does exist too. Um, but it, it may also speak to just the the power that, that psychopaths have over people. And, I mean, even Hare, Robert Hare, uh, he, he talked about how he himself was easily duped by, by psychopaths in, in interviews. And, I mean, this guy's the, the premier expert on the topic. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, I think there is that spectrum. Uh, there can, I think there can be, you know, um, those early trauma bonds where, um, that may, that can be deeply ingrained in, in a person. And then, you know, when they grow up and you know, find that again, that, that, that can play a part. Um, but I, I don't think that's necessarily, you know, it has to be the case. You might have a, a powerful psychopath who just likes to prey on people and and see you know what a great meal that they can that they can find. Well, the the secret to that is is to recognize that relationship um, in its infancy and and get out of it early. Mm-hmm. If you don't, it is exceedingly difficult to do that. To to um, you know, people have have left the country and pursued I mean, it, it the the connection is intense and and it it kind of locks into place and it and it just takes a supreme effort for a woman let's just say it's it's the woman that's that's the the quote unquote victim to to extricate and and have it be done and finished because it, you know the the, the vampire to have its its energy source and will come and get you and you come and get you and it's relentless. I wonder if that's a a good segue into um, real monsters. Well, no, we're talking about real monsters, but monsters that um, that exist in our reality that are uh, a little a little less common than psychopaths, but but no less real. Um, We've, uh, as SOD editors, have come across stories of high strangeness from time to time. Um, Chupacabras, the goat sucker in Puerto Rico, uh, that people have a very hard time uh, getting any corroborating information about, um, but have been witnessed. Um, animals, farmers um, in 1995, uh, Several sheep were slaughtered, their, their blood sucked out of their bodies, um, people witnessing glimpses of otherworldly creatures uh, that one 
Spanish comedian, you know, likened to a goat sucker and, and gave the name Chupacabras. And, um, you know, when you, when you look back in history and, uh, and even kind of, you know, dig deep in, in stories that you hear now, uh, these types of monsters, um, don't seem to be as uncommon as, you know, one would be led to believe. Um, one of the most, uh, Famous stories uh, of the past 50 or 100 years was the Mothman prophecies. And um, Karen, you were going to yeah, say a little uh, bit about that. Yeah, um, Mothman kind of came into, uh, I guess, uh, focus in uh, around 1966 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Um, there were there were a number of strange, high strangeness uh things going on in that area and and Mothman was one of them. Um you know, young couples would be down Lover's Lane and they they would would literally have have something land in front of their, their car, they would look up and uh, the you know their their retinas were, were burned. Um it was called Klieg conjunctivitis. Um and and what they saw was this terrifying man bird kind of hybrid uh, sort of thing with glowing red red eyes, um, and you know it would just scare the Jesus out of them. They would take off in their car. They'd be racing down the you know the road at 100 miles an hour, and this thing would be flying right over it, um, keeping keeping right up with the car like it was it was no no problem. Um, John Keel, uh, who of course wrote the Mothman prophecies, um, had you know a bunch of bunch of stories. Um, and about uh, you know women who would walk out on their porches and the and there would be this creature standing on their porch, um, or that you know they I don't know just numerous numerous uh, events. Um, so and, what was what was Mothman? How would you describe we, Mothman? Well, um, be, besides. You know, back in the back Native Americans, they they thought it was something like a, a giant terrible bird called a thunderbird. So there there may have been something way back back then um, that would swoop down and could carry a man away. And Mothman certainly was was big enough to do that. Um, he 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 could kind of hover and shoot directly up in the air. Um, just had all these these aeronautic you know feats that defied logic. Um, they thought that he he made his home in a munitions dump from World War II uh, munitions uh, it, because it used to be a bird sanctuary and they thought uh, they had a whole bunch of underground tunnels that he might have you know just been kind of a mutant a mutant bird um, and, and the sandhill crane came came up in uh, the literature as as a type of bird that stands almost as tall as a man. Uh, with a seven-foot wingspan, has reddish eye circles. So they're, they're thinking it might be something close to that. Um, um, I think spent uh, a couple of years with, with with just numerous, numerous sightings of of this creature. Um, and one of the the last times they saw him was at the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which was. Uh, in Point Pleasant, and some 46 people died, but there were other people that just kind of disappeared. Uh, he seemed to be on the edge of, of prophes- prophesizing 
uh, a disaster when they would see him. There, there might be, you know, shortly after some some kind of kind of disaster. Um, but but everybody, everybody who encou- who encountered this or said it, they encountered it, said it was a mysterious figure with glowing eyes, seven feet tall. Thought it was real. That um, the question is whether this was just a, a mass uh, hysteria or if there actually you know, was this this creature. Um, five men in a local cemetery were preparing a grave for burial. Um, they they looked up, saw something like a brown human being that lifted off from nearby trees, flew over the heads. Um, did not appear to be a bird, but it was more like a human with wings. So there's the, the descriptions are are very 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 similar. Um, and also during during this period of time that John Kilburn's out uh, around 1966, 67, 68, this, this was a big UFO area in, uh, in and around the countryside of, of uh, Point Pleasant. And so were the UFO sightings, uh, they occurred before or after uh, the Mothman? Um, I, th- I think during. during? Um, because, because he was researching Mothman and, and all, all the UFOs. Uh, incidences. I know, um, reading his book, that he would he would ha- there would be certain locations where they would always come. They would always do the same trajectory. They would always be being being going certain fields, and he spent a lot of this and and tracking down the Mothman, um, uh, you know, pers- persona. But but. The UFOs um, also came with, you know, their power outages. There was phone manipulations. Their um, vehicles would lose lose power um, if you, if you were trying to photograph the UFO, uh, your camera would go defunct. Um, they were animal mutilations and um, a lot of disappearances. So, so I mean, it was just like horrible nightmares for people weeks after weeks. Um, people would would see it. Mothman or see the UFOs and they they would go into catatonia. Mm-hmm. They would just they would, uh, the, there was one incident where this woman uh, dropped her baby because she was she was just standing there paralyzed. Oh. Baby stand, sitting there crying and and she's not paying any you know, there's, there's no cognizance of this woman. So um, you know some of, some of the skeptics dismiss Mothman as a hoax um, or an example of a mass illusion, but there just were so. So many of the exact same. Uh, you know, how do you explain a mass illusion unless you know this was being beamed at you, or or it was some kind of other kind of experience? Well, you know that story has a, a lot in common with uh, Spring-heeled Jack, uh, as he came to be known. Um, this was a story um, that began in Victorian England uh, as early as 1817. And um, uh, one night, well, actually in one month in 1837, it was documented that uh, three women were attacked by a very tall and powerful and caped individual who uh, had ironclad fingers, as they described it, um, had uh, glowing eyes and could kind of exhale fire from his mouth. And uh, he got his name spring Jack because he was witnessed uh, being able to leap 25 or 30 feet into the air 
uh, or, or distances that were horizontal. And um, this went on for some time. The mayor of England was aware that it was it made the papers. Uh, eventually, it, it uh, literature was was and stories were kind of made around the whole thing. And um, you know, this was, for lack of a better term, an, an otherworldly, like the Mothman, uh, um, entity um, that's well documented. So. Uh, and the common factor, I would say, between both stories is that uh, both of these entities, uh, in attacking or approaching or just even making themselves visible to people, were inflicting terror in them, almost as if that was their uh, reason for being. Um, you know, there there weren't any other stories that kind of suggested any uh, reason for them being there and doing the types of things that they did. Uh, Spring Hill Jack in particular would attack women and physically injure them. Uh, there's one story of, of him, you know, pulling a woman's clothing up and scratching her stomach. Um, so, uh, you know, what, what are these, you know, where, where do, where do these types of monsters, uh, fit into how we understand reality? It's, it's kind of, difficult to you can only sort of just look at the uh, historic uh, evidence for these occurrences and, and people's experiences of them like the lady who was so terrified she dropped her baby as you mentioned Karen yeah. I mean you know it, it's almost as though like psychopaths who uh, who get off on the psychological um, entrainment of their victims that 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 there's this other kind of other dimensional because um, you know, that's the only way I think we can explain it. Uh, we, you know, you can't go to uh, you, you can't go to the redwoods and, and with your binoculars and and, and look for a uh, a mothman. Uh, Bruce, uh, I'm going to interrupt you for a potential caller on the line. Uh, we'll see if uh, they're still here. They've been waiting for a little bit. Uh, caller, are you there? You're on the air. Hey, this is Andrew calling from Africa. Thanks for having me on the show. Interesting show you're having so far. Hi, uh, hi Andrew. Andrew. Hi. Welcome. Right, so um, I, I just was reading your um, paragraph of information here on the Blog Talk Radio page and noticed that you mentioned ISIS, and I suppose you're referring to ISIS sort of being like an archetype, uh, like a type of uh, monster that people perceive in their minds, and uh, and that relates to how society can be manipulated. Like when we think of gargoyles and you know the uh, plays that they would put on during the Middle Ages uh, about people burning in hell, and John Tetzel and all that sort of thing, and the demons. Uh, it's almost like a fear factor that's now obviously enhanced in our advanced media-based society on planet Earth. Um, it's it's like a system to basically control people through fear. Absolutely. That's I think that's pretty spot on. Um, we described it a little earlier in the show as a Frankenstein monster um, because you know, it, it, it is kind of this piecemeal monstrosity that's uh, been created uh, as a, you know, it's really the, um, the proxy army you know, of the U.S. and uh, different you know, other countries in the West too, you know, who, use, who use 
these guys as a means of you know, trying to accomplish you know, their their perverted and pathological uh, goals for for the world for you know control and and I mean I, yeah I think it's you know it, they'll they'll use both the um, the actual actions that they commit the atrocities that they commit and within the country that they're trying to manipulate, but, you know, they use it, I think, you know, all across the board as a threat uh, to, to right. other countries to kind of, you know, say, you got to stay in line with, uh, with what we want to do. Right. Well, um, you know, that's, that's, that's obviously to people that have actually dug under the surface and are open-minded enough to actually cut through the cognitive dissonance that we all face and recognize that these types of programs are going on, uh, people tend to find exactly what you've just said. And uh, I found some inf interesting information. I was actually just on the Yaron Brooks show, and he, I was saying to him that, you know, we all seem to be uh, manipulated by, uh, you know, intelligence agencies, which are essentially, well, in the old days, it would have been called secret societies, and people still refer to secret societies. But what these things actually are, are intelligence networks secrets of intelligence networks. You go look at things like John Dee and um, you know, Francis Bacon and that sort of thing, and you find that these people were very big into, uh, into cryptography. They were very big into secret messaging and uh, spying and secret information and being able to control mm -hmm. politics. <laughs> and then we start and we ask ourselves the question, well, you know, how did our modern society come into being? And it was all through these secret networks by the look of things. Just just digging around a little bit, you start to get that smell. You know, you start to get that trail and you start to think to yourself, well, that actually all seems to line up. Uh, but of course, the very nature of secrecy is that it's very difficult to prove any of this. And then it's easy for the cognitive dissonance to kick in for anyone to just say, like Yaron just said to me, well, I've worked for the intelligence networks, uh, something along those lines. And I'm not putting the guy down. He's got a really cool show. Um, but, uh, but, you know, and he says, well, I just don't believe that. And it's like, it's, it's, it's amazing to me how I hear it again and again and again. Well, I just don't believe that. It's, but it, once again, it comes back down to, but have you done the research? Yeah, right. You could, so, you could just suggest that he that he looked into the history of L. Ron Hubbard, the creator of Dianetics. Uh, right. You know, aside from having a history in in the military, the guy was uh, fiddling around with all sorts of uh, dark arts and, and had associations. In right. That area. And what's fascinating about Scientology is that you're not allowed to go to a psychologist if you're a Scientologist. They're hell bent on saying that Scientology, I'm that, sorry, that psychology is evil. But the thing about uh, Scientology is that it's absolutely based on the understanding of how being, human beings operate, because uh, obviously a lot of us know that L. Ron Hubbard was very good friends with Aleister Crowley. And Aleister Crowley apparently knew a lot about the human being and how our, our brains operate. That's what the alchemists knew, uh, apparently, how the human soul, or if we could call it our being, our being, operates and that was psychology before it became known as psychology the manipulation and art of control of populations like Gustave Le Bon in his the crowd and and how I mean such an elitist book that was written to say well you know we can control the crowd and this is how we do it 
Um, and it's all psychology and even understanding ourselves and how to operate every day is psychology. And, and, and then psychology, people, it's gotten a bad rap because of the psychiatry things that were done to people, which were terrible when it was starting out, especially, and still done to this day with the, uh, with the drugging and the torture and all that sort of thing, sort of modernizing the Inquisition uh, through, <laughs> through what we call now psychologists. But, uh, but psychology, obviously, the understanding of our own being uh, and, 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 and crowds and groups is, can be used for good as well. And, and what I was saying to Joran was that if we as various groups of people, um, you know, cannot create cultures of optimization, meaning our own intelligence networks, we, we can never theoretically be able to counteract the intelligence networks which exist. You know, therefore, elections will always be rigged and manipulated. Um, uh, presidents will always be controlled to a large extent. And uh, it appears that, you know, secret operations uh, as opposed to open operations, are actually a necessary thing for meaningful change on a large scale. Uh, could you just repeat that for me, Andrew? Did you, you said well, uh, well, open, open, yeah. uh, open networks? Well, what I was getting necessary? at right, is that um, the, yes, um, what I was saying was that if we've got a group of people that has an interest in protecting a particular type of group, so you might be, you, you might be out there and you're a, a group of people, just like in the Middle Ages, there either seems to be a split or a operation to create another side of the same coin between the Rosicrucians, mm -hmm. what came to be known as the Rosicrucians, and the Catholic Church, uh, where it's almost like there was a household hold fight amongst mystery schools or what you might call underground intelligence networks, secret inter intelligence networks. If you go and look at Martin Luther's seal, for example, it's the Rose and Cross, which is Rosicrucian. And uh, then you have the science and you have uh, pushing open the doors of religious freedom, whether that was a good thing or not. Uh, <laughs> coming into into being, and then having the you know Bacon's New Atlantis, that con that concept of people being able to travel across the sea to the New World and create the New Atlantis, um, that all coming out of you know what people believe they can trace back to the Rosicrucians, this group of intellectuals that 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 split because the Vatican was holding back all of that knowledge. That's the type of thing where where you could say that the Rosicrucians had a vested interest in creating something new to further humanity in a certain direction, uh, you know, places where they believed humanity needed to get to. So, so that's an interest. That's a group that has a specific interest. And now us, say, perhaps as people that uh, look at things very objectively or we look at things very uh, critically and we think about where do we really want our families or our communities to end up and do we want to be able to uh, have our own smart grids where we're controlling our own grid on our own um, uh, community uh, basis, or do we want to all be chipped, microchipped, and <laughs> hypothetically, I'm saying, if this did happen, uh, microchipped and all forced to pay uh, tax to a big um, state-controlled entity uh, that's giving us our smart grid, but it's it's for their benefit, and it's not very smart for us to go with that. Um, you know, do we want to form a group that's secretive enough that they don't know, be they being any other opposing group, which would otherwise counteract us if they knew what we were up to, and then uh, stay secret long enough, just like the Rosicrucians had to, stay secret long enough to be able to actually put our plan into action to counteract the various programs that are running against us. That's what I meant by saying that we need to probably have um, secret operations as opposed to open operations, if, if any group wanted to counteract what's going on. Well, I, I certainly the very nature agree of secrecy with the... is necessary. Yeah, I certainly agree with the point that, you know, Humanity uh, needs to form 
you know, real sincere groups to counteract what these, you know, hidden, um, more hidden elements of uh, social control uh, are doing. Um, and I think along those lines, you know, one of the uh, points that we talk a lot about on the show uh, and on the website, uh, our newest website, SOT.net, is you know, this idea of psychopaths and pathological types, how they rise to positions of power, you know, how they're uh, naturally oriented uh, in those directions, and how their psychological makeup is essentially uh, conspiratorial, uh, essentially secret, secretive, uh, hidden mm-hmm. from uh, the, the 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 reality of of normal people. And you know, when we look at history, um, mostly and specifically Western development, you know, a lot of these types of individuals, at least the characteristics uh, that that when you look at you know what the various traits are. Um, what you know, how they act, how they behave, and how they think, um, and what they do. That it's it's natural for them to form, you know, these these um, you know secretive uh, type organizations like you know NSA or, or whatever as a means yeah. of of um, having control over the population. But that's exactly and what I'm referring to. They don't have those that like empathy, you know, or you know, they don't have any qualms about doing things that normal people sure. you know just can't even it won't even enter exactly. our minds to do the types of things that they do and you know that, that our lack of knowledge of, of them is really what allows them to um to exist and, and do the things that they're doing exactly a, if we take a... the nsa that's a great example because if you have your own private network of encryption which encryption has become very sophisticated now way beyond just simple ciphers and things in um books like maybe the Voynich Manuscript is a cipher. Um, If we look at uh, cryptography as a science, you know, the ability to communicate privately and have foreknowledge, just like when the Bank of England uh, at the time of the uh, the crash, when when the Rothschilds were starting up, you know, they they preempted the Battle of Waterloo report where they were able to, um, you know, start selling and then secretly buying up stocks to be able to create their fortune. One of the major pushes in the Rothschild fortune was apparently caused by that uh, that uh, sleight of hand trick where everyone thought that they'd lost the war. Um, you know, they, they, they had this foreknowledge. And now today in trading stocks or in, that's the way that all of these things, that's the way that society has been manipulated through, through the manipulation of energy, through the control of energy, through um, I- encryption and things like that. Um, uh, security mechanisms, all of those things uh, coming down to the most, uh, to the most uh, minute level of track and trace uh, programs that people don't even know are running, perhaps, for example, through telephone networks to be able to track and trace everyone and always keep tabs on what exactly is going on. Even blog talk, for example, is a form of intelligence gathering. Now, somebody can be listening in on this network and understanding that there are people such as ourselves speaking on this network. Mm-hmm. They could trace IPs potentially, et cetera, et cetera, and know, okay, they haven't quite gotten to the point yet where they've organized themselves yet enough to be a threat. But the idea is the idea would be for us to organize us, meaning whoever got together. It doesn't necessarily have to be us, but as an example, whoever got together to actually counteract 
programs like the CIA operating in whichever country, uh, which are actually against the people or, you know, ensuring that a ruling elite maintain control over everyone. If you're able to counteract it enough to be free on a level where you can start, not, not even completely take over, but just start to live free without coercion and manipulation and absolute utter destruction. Uh, then, then you know, then you're in a good space. Then you've you've actually managed to get, uh, um, you've actually managed to preempt that control. You've managed to be secretive enough to get something organized and orchestrated. That's what Gaddafi tried to do with his gold dinar, which was a very poor attempt at introducing an alternative currency because it was too obvious. And there was a coup d'état. There was a you know an operation run to be able to destroy to destroy his nation. But but, but oh, yeah. he, he was he trying tried. to create a human society, right? I mean, that that was the, right. the biggest threat to right. uh, the pathological system. Right. But it was like a very sort system. of. I think it was a very heartfelt approach, but unfortunately, not secretive enough, not crafty enough, not careful enough, and not um, gradual enough to be able to be. Uh, under the radar, bypassing the notice of, you know, if he had, for example, started to secretly manufacture um, a whole lot of uh, a lot of goods and services utilizing solar energy, as a part of putting this out there to the world, if anyone wants to do this, but uh, and also even certain kinds of Tesla technology, which we can't mention because people might say that we're crazy. Um, but you can go on to places like Rex Research and sift through what might or might not be true, and it's quite fascinating. Um, but but this kind of thing, if you put it into industry as opposed to trying to go public or trying to um, uh, get a patent, because patents are really just it's a control mechanism once again. But but if you were to start doing that as opposed and then into into the economy and start gradually growing through technology secretly, as opposed to um, you know just trying to say well we're going to bring in the gold dinar and we're going to give Africa a gold currency, it's going to be too obvious. Of course you're going to get attacked. But the way that they attack is they say okay well there's a terrorist group in your nation so we need to liberate you because we put a terrorist group in the nation, as you mentioned with ISIS earlier on. So there always has to be this excuse, the Reichstag building, the 9-11, whatever it might be, because that's the nature of manipulation of society, creating plausible deniability. So, so this, is, this is the real crux of the matter. How secretive can we be in our operations and the right to privacy and the right to secrecy to bring balance? Well, I think you're talking about two different systems. Um, you know, the, the pathological system is inherently secretive and hidden. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that uh, a system needs to be completely hidden. Um, you know, I, I think no, not necessarily. it's natural for us to, to develop uh, our, you know, our, our bonds with each other. And, you know, I think those, I think there are, I think you still would need to be strategic. Um, but, um, well, I, I did want to suggest to you to check out Political Pornology um, by Andrew Lobachevsky. Uh, he he kind of describes the uh, pathological system in psychological terms, uh, and most specifically uh, in relation to psychopaths and the, uh, the, the basically the mechanisms of control that they use. And it's mm -hmm. kind of a more psychological um view uh, an understanding that I think reaches further than you know anything relating to the Rosicrucians and uh, secret societies mm -hmm. because it, it describes the um, the fundamental, fundamental the fundamentals of control and uh, the human world versus the the pathological one that you know we live mm -hmm. under and 
all these uh, you know organizations and stuff they'll, they'll change throughout time and you know they may or may not be coordinated with each other but the overarching thing here that we're going that we're constantly dealing with is this pathology uh, and you know it, it can relate right down to the home level and go up to the community and you know all, yes. across all society so you know we see these dynamics and uh, I think when, once we you know, really explore that and get into it, then that provides uh, a sort of protection. Uh, it's, it's, it's knowing it's knowing your enemy, and you know it inside and out, and you know where the the, the fallacies and the loopholes are to be able to um, construct something that is that is positive and decent. And it's it's a matter. I mean, you can't do. I think what you're talking about. You can't do this. Um, in a completely secret way because you only have a limited amount of um, options and you only have a limited amount of, of people that are awake enough to to uh, appreciate and join up with that. Um, it has to be something well, that's that precisely is a critical I, I mass that, and goes global. I'm yeah, sorry? I hear you. I hear you on the critical mass. I do, but I think that the crux of or the core of what is uh, being said is that you need to kind of be secretive enough to launch your program. And that works in the business world. That works in the um, financial world. It works in all sorts of different um, areas of society because um, if you look at uh, the uh, the way that, say, if Apple wants to launch a new product, they have to be super secretive about exactly what they're doing before somebody in China or one of the other major manufacturing nations gets wind of it, releases something similar to them before they manage to go to market. And that's just on a basic level of business. So they've got encryption. Google uses only um, uh, uh, open source products that, or for, in general for their computers, for example, that can be, and I don't want to go too off topic or, or labor the point, but, but the point being that um, that secrecy, even even in business, is necessary in order to have a, a launch of a program. Now, if we look at the community level or we look at a group of families or we look at a group of a specific people in a specific culture, so it might be, uh, let's say for argument's sake, it's a bad example, but let's just say Mormons, for example, or let's just say people that happen to live in the Hong Kong region of China, for example, that are passionate about maintaining their freedoms uh, that they perceive as their freedoms as opposed to the rest of mainland China. It could be any different example, but this particular group needs to be secretive enough before they launch their program, perhaps for an alternative financial system running alongside the existing one to be able to have their own bank where they can use a banking system that doesn't, that doesn't um, have a debt mechanism built into it, uh, where they can start basically utilizing their own assets as opposed, uh, that are backed by real, by real, real value as opposed to just fiat currency. Um, all of those types of things, you won't get very far you know, if, if somebody realizes, well, the brain behind it is sort of these five people, and if we just assassinate those five people, then this movement's going to be taken out at the knees. Um, so you have to be very secretive about how you go about that. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you, because you can yeah, say to me, yeah, well, well, we and need I, to try and get away from um, psychopathy, but, but that's the kind of thing no, that psychopaths no, I, I, do. I think that's just one element. But when we do look at, uh, I, when you're talking, like I was reminded of, um, Putin and basically what's what Putin is doing on the world stage and how he's been able to accomplish that. You know, it yes. is he has been uh, secretive in his strategy and I'm yes. sure has yes. you know a very close knit network of people who he can really trust because for yes. him to be able to have done what he's done, 
it's it's brilliant and it's amazing uh, when you look at you know just the long arm reach of the NSA and you know they didn't see him coming mm-hmm. at all. So uh, <laughs> well, this in, is in the interesting respect, thing. I think we can kind of look at that. Sorry. I I think there's a lot of infighting amongst very elite families and groups because um, it's 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 a strange it's a strange thing. I, I'd love to dive into this, but I don't know how much time we have left. But what I well, I would just like to address is, one thing, Andrew, Andrew, and and that is you know if you think about say something like open source um, coding or programming, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know you have this uh, this basis or platform for thousands of people around the world to contribute their knowledge and their efforts and their energy in a way being pretty accessible to you know, the, the CEOs that, that want to maintain control of things. And I it's about being strategic and, and things quiet until things are ready to reach. And I, I think, Shane, that example uh, of Putin is an excellent one in, in, in those regards. But, but he's uh, working within the system, you know, he's working with the system, with what he has. You know what I mean? In an already pathological system, he's working within it. And to, me, to expose it. Right, right. and yeah. to me that's the brilliant side of it, is that he's using these people's wishful thinking against them. Right. At the same time, so like my point is that, um, you know, we do need to be strategic, or, or anyone does who wants to, prevent a uh, or present a, a counterforce to the types of things that we're seeing at the same time you know w- one of one of our gifts uh, uh one of humanity's gifts um is bringing things out into the light and uh and doing it within working with a system that that exists being strategic certainly um but uh you know when when a group gets too insulated, I think, even if they're well-intentioned, um, they also put themselves at a disadvantage. And it's not only the disadvantage of, of Western powers being able to read their every emails and, and, and other information and phone calls and what have you, um, but they're, uh, they're not being, they're not allowing themselves to benefit from uh, those individuals who might have another side of the story uh, who might see a dimension or a weakness uh, in their plan that they, that they may be able to uh, strengthen with their input. So just, just another way of thinking about uh, what might be a, um, a, a good structure of a, of a counterforce for what we're seeing. Um, unfortunately, you break up a little bit earlier on when you were speaking about open source. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very interesting conversation. And, and uh, you know, I think this needs to be dived into more. I, I'd love to be able to try and keep in touch with SOTT uh, to try to perhaps just get more of your perspectives on it and, and uh, you know, see if there are ways to uh, sort of like transform our own beings uh, our own lives uh, in, in individually and then see, you know, how can we connect with people around us that actually can understand? As you said, it'll be only a few people initially, and then you grow out of that. Uh, just like, you know, Cecil John Rhodes had a vision, uh, not that I'm saying it's a right vision, but he gradually built his network. And after his death, he actually set up the um, roundtable groups, uh, gave the funding for that. And they eventually went forward and uh, furthered the goals of the British elite and uh you know that's that's kind of like i suppose the kind of thing that we all have to do 
uh, not on a ruthless scale, not on a unconscious uh, without conscience, but uh, but almost sort of like um, you know trying to co- collaborate with people to say, can we enter into a better you know more scientifically or um, uh, humanely managed world through through innovation? That's that's my take on it. Uh, by by collaborating yeah. with those who who have a similar vision. Yeah, if, uh, if you'd like to learn more about like you know what um, what we do, you can check out sot.net, uh, and that's a, a website where we kind of track uh, you know all the world events going on, ranging from politics to society and earth changes and and, and so on. Uh, right. So you can yeah definitely check us out there if you get a chance. I am aware. Quick question: Are you guys familiar with the perestory uh, the perestroika deception? Did you say troika? Perestroika. What is the perestroika deception, Andrew? Well, basically, uh, there was a, a, a defector from the Soviet Union by the name of Anatoly Golitsyn uh, way back in, I think it was the 80s, and uh, could have been before that. And he um, he he was a KGB spy. Um, and he eventually decided, look, I just don't like the USSR anymore. I've seen what it's like in the Western world and outside, so-called Western world, and outside of the paradigm that I'm stuck in. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave because he had the knowledge and the means to do so. So he managed to. It's sort of, sort of like the stuff that movies, movies are made out of. And he managed to sneak out and eventually ended up, I think, living in Canada. But he also wrote another book called New Lies for Old. And and the whole, um, the whole concept that he brings forth is that. Uh, politics is controlled, and I mean, you need to obviously, or you might be interested to go and have a look at it and see what your thoughts are, because he, he his take on it is that politics are controlled from a much higher level. It's like, um, where does that phrase come from? All the world's a stage and we're just the players. You know, it's interesting how we have these um, these mm. concepts like the theater of war. And then we go look back at World War II, where we can see the banks funded both sides of the war, and then they, you know, put up a banner called the Nazis, and they put up a banner called the Allies, and then it's okay, guys. Now you guys are going to perform, and we've set the stage, and you will now uh, kill yourselves because we're going to be able to gain a lot of control out of that. And it's it's, it's orchestrated yes. by the by the the writers of the script. So uh, in this case, the banking families, uh, if we go look back in history. So, I mean, regardless of what particular religious thing was involved or what particular thought processes mm-hmm. got involved along that script, it was controlled by powerful uh, you know, monetary interests uh, at its core. So, so when you go and look at New Lives for Old and, and Prehistorica Deception, he says that he actually speaks about how a couple of decades from now, Russia is going to become a very impressive democracy. And at the time, people thought that he was quite nuts. And he made a lot of predictions, which apparently have become, have come true, because he knew about these inside goals that were to be attained, to be reached. The same thing goes for, I think, Jan Smuts, who designed his flag of the United Nations. If you go look through a prophet who started speaking about some of these things, he spoke about World War III. His name, is, his name was Prophet van Rensburg. And this came out of the South African, um, it's a hidden thing, but it's a very unknown thing. But it's a, once again, a sort of like Nostradamus thing. But actually, he was friends with Jan Smuts, which is an interesting thing. And Jan Smuts was one of the British politicians that also uh, ruled in South Africa. And you go and look at things like the rumors of Albert Pike writing to Mazzini about World War III. So you start getting these pictures. Now, this guy was also an insider. So he's, he's saying that this is all planned. The whole thing of the Soviet Union becoming the savior of the world and America falling into a sort of, or North America, United States, falling into a sort of a Soviet-style um, 
uh, USSR type governments is just flipping the coin. So they flip the coin over and then the process repeats. And then they flip the coin over and the process repeats. Everyone's well, running around can, trying to figure uh, out what Andrew, to do. Andrew, I think we can agree with you that uh, that large-scale wars quite often are um, scripted and, and that there are these larger interests at play that have uh, control and and, um, and conduct things in a, in a very orchestrated way. And uh, we only have a few minutes left to us for the show. Sure. So I did want to just thank you for contributing today and, and uh, sharing no some worries. of your, uh, <laughs> your thoughts on, on all of this. And uh, uh, like Shane was saying, yeah. you know, we do invite you to have a look at SOT.net. Oh, you said you were familiar with it. Um, but tune in no, again that's great. I mean, I just uh, I feel like, uh, unfortunately, uh, I mean, it's 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 unfortunate that uh, shows like yours don't get more airtime and don't get more. I mean, I wish you guys Thank were on you. Sirius XM, but of course, it doesn't Tell happen. Tell your friends. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, oh, so you know, um, the, uh, behind if you guys could do a show on Perestroika deception, I'd be really interested in it. Are you at all familiar with um, our sister program on Sundays? Uh, behind not, the headlines? Not particularly. Uh, well, I haven't, an, I haven't uh, been following it. it it's another excellent uh, program, um, and it's also conducted by editors of SOT.net, and uh, it's just a fantastic program. Lots of insights, uh, lots of, uh, lots of uh, geopolitical um, understandings that are conveyed through it, and I think you'd enjoy it a lot. Right. It's also, well, all I uh, want to end you guys. I, I just want to end radio. off. I, I just like to end off because I'd like to let you guys. Obviously, um, it's it's almost time for the show to end. So, uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that if if Putin and Obama, right, are actually working on the same team, which sounds totally crazy, but if we look at the history of how things have been controlled, how every just about every United States president in in, in modern modern times and even going back further than that has been connected to some kind of secretive group. What's to make us think that the KGB and now known as the FSB and so on that actually is at the core is not connected to a bigger core, perhaps running out of somewhere central like the Vatican or Switzerland, uh, you know, where they all say, OK, well, you know, in, in this at this date, we're going to be having a war in Ukraine. And this group, well, that's, you, where you know, I think the, that's where I think like the importance of you know understanding just that whole topic of psychopathy and you know looking at its mechanisms. Because how Putin is behaving is not, you know, at all in congruence with how the U.S. behaves. You know, uh, when you look at his actions, uh, yeah. pretty much as soon as he came in, in Russia and you know, really transformed the country yeah. to be relieved in the nation and influence, uh, I don't need um, examples or evidence for, you know, a collusion uh, to, be, but, uh, to right. be there. And there's been a lot of excellent... But, but check it out uh, on YouTube. And on, check it out on discussing YouTube. Because that very issue. The perestroika deception says that gonna, was what would happen. I think we're going to leave it there, Andrew. All right. Thanks, guys. And, uh, I really appreciate being on the show. Yeah, thanks for calling. For calling. Appreciate <laughs> your call. Well, very interesting caller. In the form of Andrew from South Africa. Yeah. Um, I hope he does tune into Behind the Headlines. I hope he does 
really look into Saad. He, I think, I think some of the points that he was addressing uh, are really well answered there. Um, and on the subject of monsters, and getting back to uh, this theme, was there anything else that we wanted to uh, discuss and cover in that area? We could say boo. We could say a big boo to out there. Good Halloween, people. Yeah, happy Halloween, all. Yes, thanks for listening in. Yeah, they, um, yeah, you know, this this topic we didn't get to get into this uh, paranormal monster uh, topics too much, but you know, so always next year. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows what may come up? The truth is in in the future. So uh, I would like to thank all our chatters and all our call all our callers, Andrew and Jonathan, and um, make sure to check out the behind the Hi- behind the headlines show tomorrow, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern time, and on Friday there is the health and wellness show, and that starts at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So be sure to check it out, everybody, and happy Halloween, and thank you all for. For listening. <laughs> Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.